Good morning. Good morning, fellowship. Great to be with you guys this morning. Merry Christmas to you. As we're thinking about global Christmas, and someone reminded me earlier, we're like seven days to Christmas, and I thought, that's not good for me. I still have a lot to do. I don't want us to miss this. And, you know, my wife and I, every year we sit down and we talk about how much are we going to give to global Christmas this year, and we haven't had that conversation yet. We had a lot going on, and it's time. It's time to really think about this. And, you know, it ends with that graphic, less under our tree, more for the world. And I really want us to lean into that. And some of you in the room, you've never given to this before, maybe because you're new to fellowship, or maybe you've been at fellowship, but you just haven't given to this. Maybe you're a young person. Maybe you're a kid in the room, and you just thought, well, that's something my parents do. I want to encourage every single person that calls fellowship home, be a part of this. It doesn't have to be a big gift. Some of you are able to give big gifts. Many of us are not able to give big gifts. Give what you can give. There's something that that video said that I want to highlight, and that is we partner with people. These are partnerships. These are relationships that we have and have cultivated for years. And so here's what that means. When we give money to this, the the money becomes embodied, if you will, in the ministries of these people. These are relationships. We believe that incarnation matters. And it's not just write a check and then that check just disappears and, you know, it gets used for something. No, no. These are relationships that we have. These are people that are doing the same thing we're doing here all over the world. They're proclaiming good news. They're preaching God's word to people. They are rescuing those who need to be rescued from spiritual darkness. And we have a chance for the the reach of this church to extend to the four corners. So let's all do that together, gladly, joyfully, through our global Christmas. Well, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, as we saw that fourth candle lit. And that means there's just one more candle to light, and that will be on Christmas Eve. And we're excited about that, lighting the Christ candle. But, But I want to talk this morning about our Advent series. And And uh, one more message that we have in this Advent series, the series has been called Make Room. And part of the inspiration was that line in Joy to the World that says, let every heart prepare him room. And so the question we've been asking in this series is, what does it mean for us to make room for Christ as we prepare for Christmas? And the irony is, is probably not a more difficult time of year to make room for Jesus than Christmas. Isn't that funny? Uh, Let me just list to you some things that we've had on our calendar. And this is not to show off. This is actually sort of a shame, in shame that I share the busyness of our calendar. Uh, In the last two weeks, two weeks, we've had seven music concerts for our three daughters. Each of them had two at least. Seven. We've had two professional, we'll call them professional Christmas concerts, you know, that we paid money to go to that that we did. We had three work parties, uh, one fundraiser, and two personal, like, friend, family Christmas parties. And I did the math on that, and I'm like, it, it's no, no, uh, there's a reason why it feels like I'm running on fumes, you know, and our family is too. We're just gasping for air. It's all fun. It's all wonderful. It's all meaningful. It'd be hard to, to say no to any of it in a way, but, but what I've appreciated about this series, I'll use the analogy Lloyd used last week. He said the four Sundays in Advent are like four speed bumps in our Christmas celebration. Like, you know, you don't like speed bumps, but you need speed bumps. (laughs) This is how I am in these four weeks. So week one, making room for Jesus. You know, Lloyd reminded us that when it says there's no room for him in the inn, it it probably was was a guest room. There was no room for him in the guest room, but someone made room in the lower part of the house, you know, with the animals, you know, and he was laid in that manger. Someone made room for Jesus, even though it was a crowded town and a crowded space. Week two, making room for other people. 
Nate and Brittany Bruins, two of our missionaries, fellowship missionaries who've been serving in Germany, they were with us. And, and they reminded us that sometimes you have to say no to good things to make room for people. And that's what really matters. And then last week, Lloyd, making room for disappointment. He defined disappointment as that gap between our expectations and our reality. And it's just a part of life. And the invitation is to invite Jesus right into the thick of your disappointment. So this week, our message is making room to say yes to God. Making room to say yes to God. Allowing and inviting God to work in and through us. In our text this morning, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 1 is going to take a look at Mary. And this is the, the part of the Christmas story when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her, you're going to be pregnant and the, the son inside of you is going to be the savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah. And if you think about it, Mary has to be the most remarkable example in the Bible of someone making room for God to move in and through them. Someone making room to say yes to God. I think she has to be the most remarkable example. And of course, the thing that God wanted to do in and through her was literally incredible. So we're going to cover 26 through 38, verses 26 to 38 of Luke chapter 1. And you need to know right on the front end that this comes immediately after the passage that Lloyd taught last week, which was the announcement by the same angel, Gabriel, to Zechariah, saying that his wife was going to have a child, and that child would be very special as well, John the Baptist. In fact, there's so many similarities between these two passages that we know that Luke, the author, was doing something very intentional by putting them right next to each other. Take a look on the screen at the similarities between Luke 5 through 25, Luke 1, 5 through 25 last week, and this week's passage, 26 to 38. The angel Gabriel comes, the person fears, the angel gives assurance, the birth is promised, the child named, the significance of the child is described, the person asks a question, the spirit's role is described, and then a sign or instruction is given. They, they both follow that exact same pattern. There's no accident in that. Now, when a writer puts two parallel passages like this right next to each other, the central message is not the similarities. It's the differences. Think about those uh, little, you know, activity books maybe you used to do when you were a kid and they would have two pictures that to, to the, at first glance look exactly alike, two drawings, and then you have to spot the differences. You remember those? This is what's happening here in this text. Luke is inviting us to spot the differences. So what are the differences? Let's take a look at our text, and we'll start to see one right in the first verse. We'll start in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now hold right there. We'll get to 27 in just a minute. The first difference between the previous account and this one is the location Zechariah was in Jerusalem. In fact, he was in the temple in Jerusalem. Where is Mary? Well, she's in Galilee. What you need to know about Galilee is it, it's sort of like the, the rural area. It's the, it's the area that's just sort of overlooked and dismissed. Nothing good, you know, comes out of Galilee. You know, it's just sort of a backwoods part of the country. She's in Galilee and in a particular town. or it, it, It's called a city here, but in reality, it was a very tiny, it was called Nazareth. Now, what do we know about Nazareth? At this point in the Bible, we know absolutely nothing about Nazareth. Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. 
So contrast that with Jerusalem, where Zechariah was, and you got Nazareth, which is a nowhere town. And you might remember when we walked through John and, and we got to the, the part where um, uh, Philip is telling Nathaniel about Jesus, and he says, oh yeah, this guy Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's where Mary was. Okay, now... Let's keep going. Verse 27, you're going to see another difference, and that's the person that the message comes to. So the, the Abel, angel Gabriel comes, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So last week you have a priest, you have Zechariah, you have a very powerful, influential man. This week we have Mary, a, 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 a nobody in a sense. Sad but true Women did not have status in that day, especially young, unmarried women. Now, she was betrothed, but she's betrothed to a, a common laborer, a carpenter. And he wasn't like one of those cool carpenters that comes and gets paid a whole lot of money to do fancy things in your homes. It was just a word, it was a word for a worker. In fact, he, he likely worked mostly with stone. He was a stone worker, probably worked in wood as well, but you have mostly stone in that part of the world. So he was a laborer, and, and she was just a young girl, a teenager. Now, I want you to see the contrast, like we're spotting differences. Take a look at this chart. This is really interesting. We're only two verses in, right? Zechariah was in Judea, the central place of God's work. Mary was in Galilee, overlooked region far from the center of God's work. Zechariah was in Jerusalem, the holy city of God. Mary was in an unmentioned town in the Old, in the Old Testament. Can anything good come out of that place? Zechariah in the temple, which was God's dwelling place. Where did Mary live? In a peasant home. She was in the home of a poor family. Zechariah, older man, priest, well-respected, married, teenage girl, unmarried, zero social status. You start to see the differences very quickly. Now, you'll see why this matters as we go throughout our text. But for now, I just want you to have this idea, these, these differences in status between Zechariah that Gabriel comes to and Mary that he comes to next. Let me go ahead and remove that chart off the screen. Here's something most people miss about the birth of Jesus. In our day, most people miss that when the events happened, they were incredibly small. What do I mean by that? When we think about the story now, you know, because Jesus turned out to be the most important, most famous person who ever lived in I think that's just a true fact, regardless of whether you believe he was the son of God or not. He's just the most significant person in history. Because he's the most significant person in history, when we tell the story of his birth, it's like all the eyes of, of, of the world seem to be on this little girl, on Mary and Joseph, and their travel to Bethlehem and the whole story. And the reality is nobody would have noticed them. They weren't making news a peasant girl in an unknown town engaged to a common laborer, then a trip to another town, a birth in an overcrowded space, a baby placed in a manger. Even the angel's announcement in the night sky was under the radar. What do I mean? It was big. It was loud. Yes, of course. But it was at night and it was outside of town. It was in the fields. Why was it in the fields? So only the shepherds would hear it. Where am I going with this? Part of what's going on, the birth of Jesus, is God is sneaking into the world. It's all so small that it goes unnoticed by people with power. 
Even more importantly, it's under the radar of the spiritual forces of darkness. So maybe the way I can help illustrate this is uh, if, if, you, if you know the Lord of the Rings, the, the books or the movies, either one is fine, and, and I know many of you in the room do, you know the, the evil in the Lord of the Rings is Sauron, and, and he's this big eye. And, you know, he's sort of this disembodied enemy at this point, but he has this eye, and that eye can just penetrate and look long distances, and he's searching for the little hobbit Frodo who has the ring of power because Sauron needs the ring, and once he has the ring, he'll control Middle-earth. And so in the, the third installment, The Return of the King, the allies, you know, the good guy armies, they do a frontal assault against the fortress, Sauron's fortress. And the reason they do this is not because they think they can overcome the enemy. They, they, he's much too powerful. But to create a distraction so that little Frodo can sneak in through the back door. Think about Christmas that way. God is sneaking into the earth. Let's keep going with the text. We'll see this play out even more. Verses 28 through 30. And, and he, still talking about Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. In other words, she's like, I, I'm not anybody for an angel to talk to. I'm definitely not a favored one. And, and what does he mean? The Lord is with me. She's puzzling over this. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And I want to focus on this last phrase for a minute. You found favor with God. In English, when we hear that word, you found favor with God, your mind probably goes to, oh, she must have been the most righteous, like closest to perfect young girl in all of the area. That's not what it means when it says she had found favor with God. The, the word favor, the, the root, it's the root word for grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited. Now, what do we know about Mary? We, we really don't know anything about Mary. We're about to learn some things about her as the text goes on. Was Mary perfect? No. She was the teenage girl. <laughs> I haven't met a perfect teenage girl. I've got three of them at home. I don't know about you. Mary was a teenage girl. She's far from perfect. Now, was her heart in the right place? We're going to see, you know, in a little bit. I think it was. But don't think that Mary was this, this just amazing exemplary person that God looked over all the earth and said, she's the best one. I'm going to let her be the one. No. She was filled with grace with unmerited favor. So let me paraphrase what the angel is saying to Mary. And, and I think this is important. Even though you're small and poor and imperfect, you have found grace. God's grace fills you. This was the greeting of Gabriel to Mary. So Mary, think about her this way, was totally empty the moment before, the lowest of the low from a society standpoint. And now she's full and she's filled with grace. And this is exactly what happens to each of us when we receive Christ. In other words, our, our spiritual posture, when, when we ask Jesus to save us, it, we come to Jesus with nothing, we, with spiritual poverty. That's the only way you can come to Jesus and say, I, I'm imperfect, I'm, I'm, I'm poor of spirit and I need grace. And then Jesus comes, you see. Jesus in, in, invades our heart. The spirit of Christ dwells in us when we put our faith in Christ. And here's where I'm getting at with this. It's our poverty of spirit that makes room for Christ to dwell in us. Now, let's look at the next few verses and, and we're gonna see something interesting happening. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's question is the next difference that we need to spot between Zechariah and Mary. Remember, they both asked a question. But what was Zechariah's question? How shall I know this? Verse 18. Mary's question is, how will this be? Verse 34. What's the difference? It interact with me on this. Like, shout it out a little bit. You might have to think for just a minute. What's the difference between these two questions? Faith. faith. Who has faith? Mary. Okay, Mary. Mary has faith. How do you know? Like, what, what are the words that are, that, are, that are showing you something different in these two responses? Yep. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. So he said one questions, like the, the, the merit of how, you're going to have to prove this to me. So how shall I know this? I'm not going to believe it unless you show me, unless you prove it to me. And I think that's exactly right. And then, and then the other one's the mechanism, or another way I'd say it, it's a how question. It's, it's a like, sh- like okay, I'll, I'll accept this as true, but I don't know how this is going to work because I've never been with a man. And I think that's exactly right. And if you think maybe we're reading too much into the words, think about how Gabriel responds differently to both of them. To Zechariah, he rebukes his lack of faith. and says, you're not going to speak again until the child is born. And then you'll see. <laughs> That'll be the sign. To Mary, he gives her the answer to her question with no rebuke. No, no comment on any lack of faith. I think this is a lack of faith contrasted with, with a... a an explanation is desired. So how does he explain what's going to happen? Look at the next passage here. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. One of the things I love about this, Mary did not ask for a sign. She didn't need to ask for a sign, but she gets one anyway. She says, how will this happen? And he answers, the Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you. And then he still gives her a sign. I, I really like that. Now, one of the keys to understanding this whole section is to think about how Mary's pregnancy is an example of God and a human working together. What do I mean by that? The Holy Spirit had to do work. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus inside of Mary. But but once that conception happened, ladies in the room who've been pregnant, you know, it's a lot of work for her. (laughs) They don't call it labor for no reason. And this is where this is so interesting to me. What this is essentially teaching us, it's an example of God and human beings working together. Mary had to work with God, so to speak, to bring Jesus into the world. God did not have to do it this way. He could have just like zapped Jesus down on a lightning bolt 
Like, you know, in, in the mythologies, that's often how deities come to earth, right? It's the lightning bolt, or it's a ball of fire. It's, you know, it's just like up here and then down here, boom. That's not how God chose to do it. God chose not just to become human, but to be born through a human. And I want you to think about why that matters. All life comes from God. We can't claim, we can't generate life. None of us actually can. It all comes from God. But inside of Mary, Jesus was dependent on her for life, so to speak, just like any other baby. Mary had to work with God to bring Jesus into the world. She had to labor together with God. And this is a rather extreme example, but it illustrates a general principle. This is how God typically works. God typically doesn't like work through lightning bolts. God will absolutely do miracles even in our day, but most of the work that God has always done since the beginning of time right up till now, most of the work of God happens through human beings with willing hearts. God calls someone, God invites them, say, I want to do something in the world. Who wants to join me? And someone says, I don't know if you want me, but I'm in. And God empowers that person. This is the role of the Spirit throughout the Old and New Testament is to give power to do the work of God. God and human beings co-laboring together. This is what we were created for. And so this is a key to this passage. You need to understand that this pregnancy was an invitation, a co-laboring, if you will. Uh, Here's that quick application. It's not the final application, but just one right now. Has it ever occurred to you that God wants to work in and through you to accomplish his will in the world? Has that thought ever occurred to you? Or are you just kind of going through your work and going through your family? It's just sort of, well, this is kind of just for me and my family and I want to do well and, you know. God wants to work in and through you. Your work is not just work. Your family is not just a family. God's trying to do something in the world and, and he's trying to do it through you. He wants to empower you to do it. Now, there is something necessary from us. And it's a posture of the heart. And so we're going to get to this last verse. And it's the verse that differentiates Mary from Zechariah the most. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I want you to contrast this with Zechariah. Trick question. What did Zechariah say after the angel left? (laughs) Nothing. He was mute. He couldn't say anything. The text says that he came outside the temple and he was just like making signs to try to like tell him what happened. And he couldn't speak. And he couldn't speak because his heart wasn't open. It wasn't available to what Gabriel had said, now, I don't want to judge Zechariah too harshly. He's not a bad guy in the story. He's a righteous man. And guess what? God ends up using him anyway. It was just a slower process for Zechariah to get to the place that he would say, let it be to me according to your word. But Mary is there right now. Now, I want to break this down because this is such a beautiful, beautiful sentence. It's familiar to many of us, but it needs to become even more familiar. It needs to become something we carry around with us throughout our lives, throughout our days, you know, and God asks us to do something. Say, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Uh, let's break it down into two sections. The first phrase, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Behold just means look. 
She's saying, look, look at me. Like, like, look at who I am. I'm, I'm just a servant. And, but I'm not just a servant. I'm a servant of the Lord. Now, servant is doulos in Greek, which means bond slave or a slave. What, what Mary is saying here is, I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord. I'm the Lord's. Therefore, do you see what she's going? Let it be to me according to your word. In, in other words, what Mary's doing in this first part is she's sort of naming her identity. This is always harder. Identity. There it is. And the second part, it's all about her choices, her will. She is aligning her will with her identity. She's saying, because of who I am in my essence, I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord. I'm a servant. Therefore, how could I say no? Let it be to me, according to your word. I was just turning this phrase around my head like the last couple of weeks as I was preparing this message. And, and I started thinking about another passage in the New Testament where the words are very similar. Can anyone think of anyone else that said words in the New Testament that are similar to these? Yeah, yeah, there's always one right answer. Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay, this was right before he was arrested. He's praying and he's agonizing. In fact, the text says he's in such distress that, that he's got blood. You know, he's like sweating blood. And his prayer is, Father, if there's any other way other than this cross, please. But then he says this, but not my will, your will be done. Is it too far to think that Jesus learned that posture from his mother? I don't think it is. How beautiful that, that God the Father gave to Jesus an, an earthly mother who modeled this for him from the beginning. May it be to me according to your word. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord. Now, I want to take you back one, one last time to the contrast between Mary and, and Zechariah, okay? Zechariah comes out mute. He's not able to accept what, what's been given to him. Mary comes out speaking in, in a sense, behold, you know, may it be to me according to your word. How is it that little Mary got there so much faster than Zechariah? Luke is intentionally wanting us to ask this question. That's why he's contrasting the two. He's putting them up next to each other. What's the difference? You would have thought it would have been Zechariah, right? He's a priest. The job description of a priest is to do what God asks the job description of a priest is to be a servant of the Lord. It's Zechariah who's the servant of the Lord. He's the one that people would have looked at. He's a godly man with a lot of influence. He's a servant of God. And, and listen, that was true. But it seems to me Mary had something Zechariah did not have. Do you want to know what it was? Emptiness. Mary had nothing. This is why that, I wanted to show you that chart earlier. It's like Zechariah was in the center of the center of God's plan and he had influence and he had the position, he had the title, he had the status and he was well respected. Mary was no person in a nowhere town. And, and there's something about that emptiness that allowed her to be filled 
with grace. So Mary here teaches us about the space that is available inside a humble human heart. Mary's teaching us what it looks like to make room to say yes to God. And so I want to apply this to us. And here's what I have to admit. And and I'm going to use the word us because I think I'm talking to a lot of us, but for sure I'm talking to me. Most of us are so full of other things, we don't have space to say yes to God. What would it be like for people like us that are so full, and, and, and I'm talking about, you know, we're, we're, we're full of, of activities and we're full of appointments on our calendars and, and we're full of money. We're full of stuff. We're full of relationships. You know, some of us are full of status and power and influence in these things. What, what does it look like for people who are so full to make room to say yes to God? I want to give you two ideas from our text this morning by way of application and and just consider you to to ponder these. Number one, we must become more comfortable with emptiness. I'm talking about emptiness of all kinds. This is so counterintuitive for us. You know, there's a saying that says nature abhors a vacuum. Nature does not like vacuums. Neither do we. When there's a part of our lives that feels empty, we rush in to fill it. You ever felt lonely? It's terrible. We've all felt lonely. I've got to reach out. I've got to surround myself with people. And of course, that's not wrong at all. God gives us community, these kinds of things. But we hate that feeling. You ever felt just sort of impoverished emotionally? It's like, oh, just feeling down, just feeling blue. Ice cream, that's what I need. You felt empty financially. It's just like, man, look at that bank account. What? I got to work harder. I've got to get a side gig. I've, I've got to fill in the gaps. Now, again, most of this is not bad. It's not wrong. But I just want you to see this in you. I'm, just, I'm trying to see this in me. Is I'm not comfortable with emptiness. I think the reason we're uncomfortable with empty spaces is because empty spaces ache. But the empty spaces have work to do. And I'll put it this way. The aches of the empty spaces prepare our hearts for the arrival of Jesus. The aches in your empty spaces are preparing him room, you see. Did you know that the story of Christmas didn't start in the New Testament? It started all the way back in the Garden of, of, of Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Eden, Genesis. In fact, you, you really could say the story of Christmas starts in Genesis chapter one. God creates mankind to dwell with them, to live with them, to walk with them, to converse with them, to be with them. And then the first humans run away from God. Spiritually through their sin, and then literally they hide. They run away from God. They, he, he, he's looking for them. 
right? And then what do they do? They cover themselves with fig leaves because they're feeling shame in their nakedness. And what does God do? He comes to find them. And then he gives them the provision that they need for their shame. He covers them. And then starting right there, we're in Genesis chapter three right now, and through the rest of the whole Old Testament, every heart that felt empty inside and cried out to God, save me, deliver me, fill me up. Every heart was making room for Jesus' arrival. So let's not be so quick to fill our empty spaces. They have work to do in us. Let's let them linger sometimes so that they'll turn our hearts upward and we might invite him in. Thought number two. I think as, as, we're, as we're thinking about what it means for us to be more comfortable with emptiness, I, I want us to think about something else too. And, and that's just to start small. You don't have to turn your life around overnight. You can't do it. You can't do it. For some of you, you came in this morning, you're just so beaten and battered. The, the idea of, of, of letting God work in and through you just seems like a far off place for you. Have you noticed how small the characters in the Christmas story are? Have you noticed how many small things are in this story? The, the whole thing is about God becoming small. The towns were small. The manger was small. Mary was so small. And all she had to offer was so small. And it turned out that's exactly what God needed. Just a small little space. What would it look like for you to just start small? Wherever you are, whatever you have, whatever emptiness you have inside your heart, start small. Just say, God, would you dwell right there? I invite you in right there. I make room for you. I don't know what that will look like for you, but I can tell you what it looked like for me. This last Monday, I had a day off and it was sort of kind of the first day off I'd had in a while. You know, I had some other days off, but they ended up not being days off, if you know what I mean. And this is a busy time of year. It's just, you've, you've heard it's busy for my family and busy for us in general. It's busy when you're doing church work. And some of you, if you're in retail or things like that, it's busy. I mean, it's just a busy time of year. And I hadn't had a, a real day off. And Monday was my first day off. And uh, I woke up and I opened the curtains in our, our bedroom and looked out. And I was like, oh, the leaves. <laughs> All of our neighbors have their leaves raked like three weeks ago, and we have all these leaves still in our yard left over from October, November. It's like, all right, so Jody and I went out there and, and, and started raking leaves, and I was raking leaves, and guys, I, I, I'm not afraid to tell you, I just didn't feel good inside. Like, and it wasn't about the leaves at that point. I, I was just sort of reflecting on things, and I'm like, I've got so much disappointment. And uh, the biggest disappointment for me came in as I thought about my family. And so I was thinking about, I was like, we got a senior in high school this year. And, you know, this is the first time we've been through this. And this is the last time we'll do this and the last time we'll do that, you know, and you get all sentimental and all this kind of stuff. And it's been heavy on me, but more than the sentimentality of it is just the, the question of 
what went wrong? Now, not so much with, with her, so to speak. I mean, there's so many wonderful things about her, but with, with our family as a whole, it's like, this is not what I thought. We have teenage, three, three teenage girls in our home. I was like, this is not fun. This is hard. This is not easy. And so I was thinking about this. I was just feeling the weight of all this. And I was raking leaves. I didn't want to be raking leaves. And, and then all of a sudden I looked around and I was like, all the neighbors have Christmas lights in their yard. We don't have Christmas lights in our yard. We used to put up Christmas lights in our yard. When the kids were little, when life wasn't so hard, when they wanted to be with us, we used to put Christmas lights in the yard. And I was raking leaves and I was thinking about all this and I was just feeling all this disappointment. And then um, I, I, I thought this thought, and you know, you know how it is. Sometimes you think, is that God speaking to me or not? And, and I actually, this doesn't happen to me all the time, but I do believe this was God's spirit. I just thought of this whole phrase in my head and it was, push back the darkness. I just kept raking. I was like, push back the darkness. And I thought, I'm going to put up some Christmas lights. So I went over to Jody, you know, but this time she had the, the blower going and, and she was one facing me. I tapped on her shoulder and she turned off the blower and she looked at me and I said, I'm going to push back the darkness. <laughs> and she, she didn't even laugh. She was kind of staring at me and she was like, what? I'm going to push back the darkness by putting up some Christmas lights. And then she's kind of had this little like, bless your heart, look in her eyes. <laughs> and she said, okay. And then she turned back around and just started using the blower again. I just kind of stood there a little bit. And then 10 seconds later, I mean, I could almost just know exactly what was going on in my wife's head during those 10 seconds. She was just thinking, oh, what has wrong, gone wrong with my husband? She turned back around. She came over to me. She, she put her hand on my arm. She said, I'll push back the darkness with you. And so I got out the ladder and um, we got out the lights that had just been sitting in our foyer since Thanksgiving. And, and I didn't think I was ever going to put those lights up. But I got up on that ladder and we have this holly tree in the corner and, and it's gotten really tall. Last time we did put lights on and I didn't need a ladder. And, and, and I was stringing the lights all around this holly tree and I got to the top of the ladder and, and it still was too short even with the tallest step ladder we had. So the last little, it was kind of like a cowboy. I just sort of <laughs> threw it up there. Wouldn't you know, it just sort of perfectly draped and did this nice little loop at the end. And I came down and just stared at that tree and I realized that's what it looked like for me today to work with God. I put those lights up as the light of Christ pushing back the darkness around my home. And I stood there looking at that tree and, and I literally said out loud, glory be to Jesus. And then our oldest daughter, the one that's going to be going to college next year, she and I went out later to get some coffee and just hang out. And, and as we, we, we pulled you know, out of the driveway or the house, I, I, I paused and I, I said, I want you to go look, look at that tree. And I said, I put up those lights with Jesus to push back the darkness. And she kind of looked at me funny. 
And she said, way to go, Daddy. <laughs> and, and I want you to see the lights that I put up. And I want you to know that might have been the first time I really worshiped Jesus this Christmas season. And so I want to give us a couple of minutes. I want to give us just some space to consider what would it look like for you to work with God? Start small. Just take an empty place in you and say, God, I'll work with you right there. I'll make room to say yes to what you have. And go ahead and bow your heads with me right now. And I'll, I want to just lead us through this guided prayer. The band's going to come out. They're going to sing a song over us when this is done. But for right now, I just want to give us some space to be still. And, and Father, we, we start this prayer by acknowledging that we are your servants. We belong to you. We're, we're servants of the Lord. We're not our own. It's hard for us to accept that. We've got our own plans. We've got our own agendas. But, but may it be to us according to your word. And so congregation, I just want to invite you right now just to consider what do you need to make room in your heart for? What would it mean for you and Jesus to push back the darkness together? Take a moment and reflect. Our Father, as you hear these prayers to you, I pray that you would fill us with grace as we consider our empty spaces and as we invite you in and as we make ourselves available for you to do your work on this earth through us. I pray that we would have the space to say yes. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for loving this human race. Thank you for becoming one of us. Thank you for Jesus. May we prepare him room in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.